Romans chapter 12, verse 15. One verse today. Sometimes I like to do a retrospective after we finish a book, and we've completed our Romans series, and I, you know, if there's a certain verse that's grabbed me or a certain concept, we go back into the book and sort of add the exclamation point. So trying to add the exclamation point, if I can say that, uh, this morning on this uh, series, and let's look now, Romans 12, verse 15, and I'll read that. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would help us to relate to each other as a church in ways that proclaim the hope that we have in the gospel, in ways that are encouraging and building up for mutual building up for all of our faith. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this passage, you'd guide and lead us in your truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last fall, I was talking to a fellow pastor, and I was explaining to him some hard things that were happening in my life. And, you know, something happened. He really listened. He really listened. And afterward... Because, you know, somebody has to pastor the pastor, right? He really listened. He prayed for me. And it was just a wonderful experience. And I want to ask you this morning, have you had that experience? When was the last time someone really, really, really listened to you? Or the last time somebody asked you, how are you doing? And, you know, you gave them the standard answer, oh, I'm fine. And they asked, how are you really doing? And they listened. When was the last time that happened to you? You know, there is something supernaturally comforting when fellow believers relate this way. And certainly that was true at the Roman church. And this instruction, which is a command here in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, comes from the larger context here of presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. That's back in Romans 12.1. So this is an application point. And it's important for us, as I'm thinking about heading out on sabbatical, April 25th, for three months, I will not be here. I will not be in the pulpit here at Trinity for three months till July 17th when I come back, and I won't be here to referee. I mean, I won't be here to listen to you. To, I will be praying for you, but I won't be here to listen to you and to hear you out, and you must, in a healthy church carry out this function member to member, member to member. Whether I'm here or not, we need to grow in this area. And that's certainly what motivated, partly what motivated the Apostle Paul to write this inspired command to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And so a healthy church, which is what we aspire to, 
you know, sometimes people will say, well, we want to be a, a flagship church or a big church or a certain size or whatever. I think that's all immaterial. We'll be whatever size God wants us to be. What's, what we can focus on is being a healthy church. And a healthy church, one thing that contributes very uh, very much in an important contribution to the health of a church is when member relates to member in the way that's articulated here in Romans 12, 15. One person at a time, in the trenches, one person at a time, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. So let's look closely then at what this means and what this entails. There's an outline there in your bulletin. And the first point here is life has rejoicing and weeping. Let's not skip over the obvious here. Life has rejoicing and it has weeping. This is part of what it means to live in a fallen world. In a fallen world, the fact that sin came into the world in the Garden of Eden, it wrecked the perfect creation that God set Adam and Eve in. And what this means is that the effects of the fall, the brokenness of this world, disease, violence, disaster, all of that entered into the world way back in the garden, and it will splash up on you. There will be times in your life where you are rejoicing, happy times, times to celebrate. And I've been with you on some of those days. You know, think graduation, baptism. I get this gospel thing. Think about that happening in a person's life. Those are some of the happiest times. But then also, I've been with you. I've had that privilege of being with you even on the days that are full of weeping, death, disaster, things not working out, putting 100% effort into something and it doesn't go the way we expect. The vanity of our labor and our effort is part of what we weep over in a fallen world. So there are not so good days, days for weeping, and there are days of celebration. And I say that to state the obvious because sometimes in our world or culture, there is this positivity that enters in that says we can't have a bad day or that God is asleep when the hard things happen to us. But in point of fact, we know that God isn't asleep, that he designs, think Genesis 50, 20, Jacob's, or excuse me, Joseph's words here, uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He can turn even the difficult, hard things and the things we weep over, he can turn those for good in our lives. There is an important point to make here. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, and it is the with preposition that's in that verse. That when you and I are with people, whether they're rejoicing or whether they're weeping, we are fulfilling this command and in part living out the very character and image of God. We are created, think Genesis 1.27, in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it can't be anything physical about us. It's not physical because 
God doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. So it can't be that. So instead, the image, think here, it is a verb. So we image God just as a mirror reflects our image. So we were meant and we feel most fulfilled when we are reflecting the image of God, reflecting his character. And what is his character? He is with us. Think Isaiah 7:14. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Think of Jesus' words in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This withness, not witness, withness is an important feature of our Christianity and our fellowship together as a church. You know, when Afghanistan, it's an interesting contrast here between the fall of Afghanistan and what's going on in the Ukraine. In Afghanistan, the president couldn't get out of there fast enough. But in the Ukraine, he's staying. He is with his people. This withness. You know, I think I grew up at a time uh, where America was a country we didn't leave people behind. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't want to be left behind. And in Christianity, especially if you're amillennial like me, there is no leaving behind. There is no leaving behind. It is un-American to leave people behind, but most importantly, it is not Christian to leave people behind. What do I mean by this? I mean, we leave people behind when we see people celebrating and we're envious of their celebration and we don't participate in it. Or we're jealous because everything is going well in their life. And what are we instructed to hear? Rejoice with those who rejoice. It's an invitation out of our self-centeredness, out of our focus on ourselves and what a healthy church members focus on each other. They each other, each other. They one another. They don't have the focus on themselves. So when someone is celebrating and rejoicing, we don't leave them behind. We come over. No matter what's going on in our life, we can celebrate together. We can rejoice together with them in that rejoicing. And then there's the withness that reflects the fact that God will never leave you behind. He will never leave you or forsake you as we image God when we're together with people in their darkest, hardest times, when they are weeping. You know what happens when someone close to you uh, passes away when they die? A lot of times it's very isolating because people will say, what will they say? Well, I, I don't know what to say to that person. I don't know what to say to that person, so I just, I, I walk the other way. Well, the encouragement to us here in this verse, weep with those who weep. There's nothing to say. You don't have to say anything. Put your arm around them and be with them in that difficult and hard moment to weep with those 
who weep. Let's be a church that doesn't leave anyone behind. That we would be with each other, both in the good times, in the times we're rejoicing, and in the times that we are weeping. So this is the withness. Because life has rejoicing and weeping. We can't escape it. And a healthy church, we don't leave people behind. We're with each other as God is with us and demonstrates his withness to us, most especially in bridging the gap between heaven and earth by sending Christ for us. So life has rejoicing and weeping. And then the second point here is that we need to meet people where they're, where they're at. Meet people where they are. And if you look back at our verse here, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. There is a meeting place of emotion with emotion. It doesn't say for us to weep with those who rejoice or to rejoice with those who weep. No, instead we meet people where they are at uh, in their emotional state. So this is an invitation not to uh, run into somebody who is in that weeping mode and, and we tell a joke to try to lift their spirits. There's, that's not the command here. We lift spirits by communicating our witness to them that they are not alone and that they have not been left behind. So there's not this pressure to try to lift spirits, but instead to acknowledge the emotions of others and be with them in those. And this is that word that gets thrown around a lot, empathy. So to be empathetic to a person is to be with them in their experience of their emotions. Now, uh, right now, uh, our culture, society, psychology has really gone uh, uh, after this concept of empathy. But I want to tell you this. They have only discovered, because all truth is God's truth, they have stumbled upon a gospel reality of the comfort when you have someone there to suffer with you or celebrate with you. When someone is telling you they are rejoicing or weeping, our uh, calling in a healthy church is to meet them where they are at. And we see the demonstration of that empathy in Hebrews chapter 4, which you heard read earlier as our assurance of grace. And I'm going to read it to you again here. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So just to pause there, verse 14, because we have Jesus as our high priest to intercede for us, that enables and motivates us to hold fast to our confession and to not compromise. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet was without sin. And because we have this one who has sympathized with us, because we have one who has felt as we have felt, 
He was tempted as we are tempted, yet without sin. What does it motivate us to do? Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus' incarnation is a demonstration that we can draw near to the throne of grace because we have a God who understands, who knows us, and has sent Christ for us. So meeting people where they are at is a function of a healthy church, member to member, one person at a time, functioning as a healthy community by meeting people where they are at. Now, give you an example here of not meeting people where they are at. So uh, you probably know we have twins. They're 22 years old now. And I, I still remember when Tracy was pregnant with the twins, uh, we heard every twin story. Every single twin story in the existence of the universe was told by us, by, told to us, as soon as we said, we're having twins, boom, here comes the twin story. And we have, this is part of how we make meaning. We tell stories. This is part of how human beings make meaning. We tell stories. Well, let me tell you, as my mom would say, I've had it up to here. Um, somewhere along the line, you know, our, our, our twins had some medical complications and they're, they're okay now. But uh, when people would start telling me the twin story, I would tell them, I don't want to hear it. If this twin story doesn't end well, you can stop right here. And, and we would think, we would, you know, that's kind of rude, isn't it? You're supposed to just sit there and endure it. Well, I had endured it too much. And I had had it. I didn't want to hear these discouraging stories about medical complications. I wanted the happy ending. And likewise, when someone relates to you what's going on in their life, this is not an invitation for you to tell a story. This is your time to listen. This is your time to listen. Now, they may you know, really appreciate and enjoy your story and relate to it. But part of loving people is relating to them and meeting them where they're at and remembering it's not about us. It's not about your cousin's babysitter's dog who had the same problem your dog has. It's about concern over the dog and the worry and how we love our four-legged friends. That's what it's about. And so that instinct that we have to tell a story, we need to put a lid on that and enter into that experience and listen. Just as Jesus entered into our experience, was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. He shows us the way that we don't need to make everything about us or our stories or our experiences or our cousin's babysitter's dog. We can listen. 
Because this is in part how we enforce an experience on people and we try to regulate. Sometimes we try to regulate the emotions, don't we? And what do we do? We tell people, it's going to be okay. It's going to work out. My boss's neighbor's cousin's brother who lived next door to somebody was in a tangentially similar situation and it all worked out. You got nothing to worry about. That, that's, regu- that's sort of a pat on the head. That's a proverbial pat on the head. Don't worry. But you know what? I am worried. And you know, it's all going to work out till it doesn't. You ever had one of those? And so what do we do? Instead of regulate, enter into the situation. This is the way of Jesus. He entered into our world and we enter into that situation. And just as we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize, we're called to sympathize and to empathize and to relate and serve others as we put their emotions front and center and listen and serve. If they want a story, they'll ask you for it. And they'll be ready and interested when they ask for it. But we're called to just be there, as simple as it sounds, to relate to their emotions and meet people where they are at. So, so far, what we've seen, we're talking about in the trenches, one person to one person, the relationships that we have that build the church, that make a church community both healthy and sweet. We talked about life as rejoicing and weeping. That's the reality. There's going to be ups and downs, and we don't want to leave anyone behind. Uh, Instead, we want to be with them as we model and image how God is with us and doesn't leave us or forsake us. We also want to meet people where they're at, remembering it isn't about us. It's not about our story. It's about them. It's about their experience, and it's part of how we serve them is we meet them. Just like I was told every twin story in existence, and I finally learned, I got to quit saying, I'm, I'm becoming a worry wart if you keep telling me your bad news stories about twins, so I don't want to hear it. We need to not drive people to that point, but instead point to God's faithfulness and in, in how we meet them where they are at. And then the third point here is to express gentleness. And I think this is implied in the passage by good and necessary inference to use the uh, words of our confession, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, requires a certain gentleness in the way that we tread lightly in other people's lives, that we are paying attention to uh, what they're saying, the words that they use, their body language even, as we relate to others, that we have a gentleness about us that doesn't force our way on other people. You know, the, one of the hazards of Bernie, we live in a successful community, a lot of successful here. You, you are some successful uh, people for sure. And one of the hazards of that is we lose this gentleness, And instead, we get in 
an advisory capacity to everybody. Here's what you should do. You know, if I were to tell you, well, I, j- I just don't know where to go on vacation. You know what would happen after this sermon? I'd be getting advice, emails. This is what you should do. You should go here. And, and we sort of get in that mode, and there's nothing wrong with giving advice, even unsolicited advice. But the thing is, we need to step out of that mode and tread lightly and gently into the world and into relationships where we have this meekness and the humility to recognize the situation that we're in and not try to flip it or change it, not try to advise people. You should do this. Are some of the the most common words in Bernie that are uttered? You should do this. You should do this. But to have that gentleness, which sometimes we might look at gentleness and say, well, that's, you know, if you're a guy, that's an unmanly quality. No, it isn't. Galatians 5, it's a fruit of the Spirit that we would move forward with a gentleness and reflect that gentleness as we uh, relate to other people. When you are gentle, you're meek, you're humble, and you're able to notice what's going on in the lives of other people and not try to change it around to, you should do this. There's an example, uh, I'll close with this, from the scripture of uh, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. And it comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel 6. And what happens there in 2 Samuel 6, the ark of the covenant comes back to Jerusalem. It comes back to Jerusalem. And you remember uh, David is, is leaping and dancing and he's wearing a linen ephod, which is like a, a, in our modern day, it'd be like his t-shirt. He's got his t-shirt on. He's taken off uh, his nice clothes. And Michael, uh, David's wife, sees him dancing in this way. And she responds... Uh, David returns to bless his household. This is in 2 Samuel 6.20. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel has honored himself today. So she's being sarcastic. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So So she is concerned for his reputation and dignity. And she is saying he has undignified himself as the king of Israel because of his rejoicing at the Ark of the Covenant coming back to Jerusalem. And and David responds in verse 21 of 2 Samuel 6. He says this, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. So he's determined to to rejoice. And he says this, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. What did she fail to do? Rejoice with those who rejoice. She failed to do that. She couldn't see. She was more concerned about what other people thought of her husband, the king. 
than she was with celebrating and rejoicing. Rejoicing and weeping is not meant to be regulated, but instead empathized with, and that's the marks of a healthy church community, that someone can be experiencing something wonderful or terrible, and we won't leave them behind. We will come around them to celebrate with them, to encourage them. We will not come around them and say, oh, you got nothing to worry about. It'll all work out. It'll all work out because we know Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Yes, but you may not realize that fulfillment of that passage until the next life. So sometimes it isn't, that's not the verse you want to lead with uh, in the midst of pain. Instead, we want to relate as a church community in healthy ways, one person at a time. How do we do that? We recognize there's good times and there's bad. Life has rejoicing and weeping, and we don't leave people behind. If you're here to celebrate, if you're here to weep, we want to come alongside you and be with you in the midst of that and not leave you behind. We want to meet people where they're at. What do I mean by that? We don't want to regulate them. We, we don't want to tell them our stories and make it about us instead of them. Instead, we serve them by meeting their emotion where they are at and empathizing and sympathizing with them. And then we express gentleness as a church, which is a fruit of the Spirit as we relate to what they're going through and step out of the advisory capacity and enter into what they're going through. So that's our calling, a healthy church community. One person at a time obeys this verse, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you have made us emotional beings and that we can experience the different facets of life together, and we pray that you would enable us to be a healthy church community, that we together as your people would relate in ways that build each other up and encourage each other, that provide comfort, help, hope, and that you would help us as we help others that this would be a church where no one is left behind, but instead we transcribe your very character of never leaving us or forsaking us all over our relationships, we ask. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.